Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see you here today. If you're just uh, joining with us, we are in a summer sermon series entitled The Words We Use, and we're looking at how God's Word is supposed to shape um, our words. We're looking at uh, the words we use with God, the words we use with each other, and the words we use on mission. And last week we began looking at words of confession, words we use with God that help us deal with the sin in our lives, to deal with the sin in our lives in a way that brings about genuine life change. Last week we said is our big idea for these two messages basically is genuine confession leads to genuine change. And we looked at uh, the change that came about in David's words of confession in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 helps us understand sin and the consequences of concealing our sin, but it also shows us how genuine confession leads us to God's blessing. And, and we heard uh, David, King David, the greatest ever king of ancient Israel, we heard uh, David's story of grace and how confession set him free to the bondage of secret sins that were tormenting him and destroying his life. God's epitaph over David's life was that he was a man after God's own heart. But even the best of men can mess up badly, and David really messed up. And even though Psalm 32 doesn't tell us specifically what the occasion was for the psalm, most scholars think that Psalm, uh, Psalms 32 and 51 are, in their words, tuned together. And Psalm 51, which we're going to look at in just a minute, uh, is another psalm of confession and repentance. And that psalm tells us specifically at the beginning and the heading that it was written by David uh, when the prophet Nathan came to him after, he, after David had committed adultery with uh, Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, suffice it to say that uh, David blew up his life as much as anybody ever has. He, he fell in love with a woman who was not his wife, and he had her husband killed in order to cover his adultery and to take her as his wife. And eventually his sin was exposed by a prophet named Nathan, and David fell into a deep pit of despair. I mean, the first it was a kind of a psychological death, and he was just disgusted with himself. The guilt of his sin just beat him down. And then second, I mean, how could he face anybody anymore? I mean, like, how could he ever lead again? Why would anybody ever listen to him again? He couldn't face people. He couldn't face God. So how could he even pray? And then he prays this prayer, these prayers of confession and repentance. And at the end of Psalm 32 last week, we saw how that David came out rejoicing and praising God. And the question is, how is that possible? What accounts for the change in his life? And, and simply put, confession. David confessed his sin. He said, um, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I've not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And when I did, you forgave me the iniquity of my sin, the sinfulness of my sin. Genuine confession brought about genuine change and the blessing of forgiveness. So last week, we heard David's story of grace. And at the end of uh, the message. We heard a modern day uh, example of David's story in uh, Todd Devaney's story of grace. And if you missed last week, you've got to go back and listen to the message and listen to Todd's uh, story of his 20-month journey 
of confession and repentance and making restitution and reconciliation, pursuing reconciliation in his marriage and with his family and the healing that came up, has come about in the restoration. By the way, if you, uh, those of you that were here, uh, you heard Todd talk about how he's been walking a path toward restoration that included a program that we have here at church called Regen. And Regen is a discipleship course that helps people get unstuck, helps people get free from sinful habits and, and, and addictions that uh, have been weighing them uh, down. And if you want more information about uh, Regen, you can contact Trenton Stokes. He's our pastor that oversees Regen. There's his email, tstokes at fellowshipgreenville.org. And last week, uh, Todd also mentioned his involvement in a ministry based in Nashville uh, called Ten Man Ministries. And here's uh, their contact point right here on the screen for you. Interestingly enough, um, they called, uh, Ten Man called us last week, and, 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 and there's already been people from our church and then people who have been, who listen online from other states uh, have t contacted Tin Man because of uh, Todd's testimony. And this morning, uh, Trenton and his assistant Tanya and, and Todd and, and others who have, uh, are leading and have been through Regen, they're going to be out at the next step table in the commons. And if you want more information about Regen or Tin Man or any of the things that we've talked about in these services, uh, they'll be there to answer the questions. And Todd has volunteered to do a six-week groundwork course this summer. Regen doesn't start to the fall, but because there's been so much em emphasis, uh, Todd Devaney is going to lead a six-week course, and you can talk to them out at the next step table about that as well. So now, last week I talked a little bit about clearing up confession confusion because there's a great deal of misunderstanding when it comes to this whole area of confession, some coming from our religious backgrounds where confession was nothing more than a way to relieve our guilt uh, so we could go back into daily life and commit the same sins all over again. And there was confusion also coming uh, from a question that believers sometimes ask, and that is, if my sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross, then why do I need to bother with confession at all? And somehow, some of us have come to believe that since we have been forgiven, all of our sins, past, present, and future, they've all been forgiven, then why confess our sins? I don't need to confess my sins. Well, that's just plain <laughs> wrong. And we talked about all that last week, so go back and listen to that message if you missed it. Now, but the fact is, we need to take uh, confession more seriously because there are a lot of, a lot of people who at one time or another have blown their lives up, some worse than others. I talk to people all the time, and I hear, I hear them say, I, I did something really stupid, and I've lost everything. I've lost my career. I've lost my marriage. I've lost my close friends, my own self-respect. I really blew it. But then there's, on the other hand, there's uh, some, some people will say, well, that's not me. I, I understand that, you know, for people who really, really screw up. But me, I, I would never do something like that don't be so sure. I remember when I was in graduate school and seminary, one of our professors got entangled in an emotional affair uh, and he had to uh, step down. 
And I remember talking to another professor that I got to know pretty well over my four years at, at, at Dallas. And, uh, and I was talking to him, and I was like, man, I just cannot believe. I can't get over Dr. So-and-so getting wrapped up in this affair thing. I just can't believe it. And my professor friend looked at me, and he said, Charlie, if it could happen to King David, it can happen to anyone, and you better know that it could happen to you. And he was right. I mean, if David was a man after God's own heart, one of the most godly and great people in the history of the world, and he was capable of this, do you not think that you're capable? If David had things in his heart that undealt with and unaddressed finally exploded and blew up his life, you don't think that those things are in your heart as well? You see, confession isn't just for the big sins of which we're all capable. It's also for what we think are small sins, like sins like lust and, and anger. You remember what Jesus said, right? I mean, Jesus said, this is my paraphrase, adultery has its roots in the heart sin of lust. Murder has its roots in the heart sins of anger and hate. And we have to take those small sins seriously because they grow into sins that we never thought we would commit. And how is that, how is that possible? Because sin creates self-deception. Sin, uh, it, it, it creates slavery. It's like unconfessed sin plants landmines all through your life and at some point they're gonna blow up so sin needs to be dealt with it needs to be confessed and confession is like mind sweeping your heart the question is when you sin what do you do with it most often we just make excuses for it I mean we blame it on someone else or some circumstance that we say that's that's why I did it the circumstance caused it worse all too often we don't even think of the wrongs that we do as sin unless of course it's some David and Bathsheba size sin but if that's our mindset of course we're not gonna take sin seriously you see one reason we don't take confession seriously is because we don't take sin seriously either we take either we uh, don't take sin seriously enough or we become overwhelmed by it or either we feel little to no guilt over the wrongs we do or we're weighed down by a haunting guilt that just won't go away. Or either we bury our sins, ignore them, keep them secret, or we can't get past them. But what if I told you that there was a process that no matter how much you blew up your life, if you use this process, there's a way to come out the other side restored, whole, and free. Would you be interested in that? Well, the process is simple. Here it is. The, the process of restoration, the path to restoration is repentance, restitution, and reconciliation. Repentance, restitution, and reconciliation. The process is linear, but each step overlaps and carries forward what came before it. Okay, so it's just going to kind of go like this as you move forward. So step one, repentance. Now last week, I talked about how confession and repentance were almost synonyms because both involve agreeing with God that what I've done is sin. In other words, I changed my mind from blaming someone else to owning that I am the blame. I changed my mind from thinking that some circumstance caused me to do what I did to taking personal responsibility for what I've done. Now, the fact is, people in circumstances do not cause us to sin. 
People and circumstances do not cause us to sin. They may shape our sinful response, but they don't cause us to sin. We sin because we choose to sin. We could have made a different choice, but we chose a sinful response because at the time it seemed like the best choice. The choice that would protect us from losing a relationship, the choice that would uh, protect us from losing our reputation, the choice that would keep us looking good. We sin because we choose to sin. So uh, we agree with God that what we've done is sin. We change our mind from thinking someone or something else is to blame to taking personal responsibility for our sin. And then, by God's grace, we resolve to forsake that sin. That's repentance. That's repentance. And we need to camp on this a little bit longer. So I want to look at the other psalm that David wrote that talks about how he dealt with his sin after it was exposed by Nathan the prophet. So turn with me uh, to Psalm 51. Find your way to Psalm 51, paper or digital. Psalm 51, I'm going to read the whole psalm, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. I tell you, this is such a great psalm, and it is packed full of all kinds of helpful insights. But there's no way that I can unpack all, it, all of it for you today because I want to move beyond confession and repentance and talk about restitution and reconciliation. But we do need to spend a little more time around the whole idea of repentance and being honest with ourselves and with God about our sin. I'm not going to do what we normally do, and that is I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse exposition of the psalm and dissect it down 
to the details, but what I, do, I want to do is I want to take it all together. I, I don't know about you, and I've read this psalm many times this week, but every time I read Psalm 51, there's this sense of peace that comes over me. The honesty and the humility I hear in the words David uses in this prayer are so refreshing, they motivate me to desire and cultivate the same kind of open and honest relationship with God that he had. Because you see, David's great desire was that he would be right with God. As in, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in me, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And that's a prayer that I want to continually be on my lips. But what really jumps off the page at me is that David knows the heart of God so well that he knows that God will have mercy on him. He has the assurance that because of the covenant promise God made with him, he knows, but he doesn't take for granted, that God will not cast him away from his presence or take his spirit away from him the way he did with the former king Saul. He knows God is the God of his salvation. He knows that God will restore all those who are broken and contrite in heart. He knows that because of the grace and mercy of God, it's possible to commit grievous sins but be restored to fellowship with God so that lips that were once deceitful and dishonest can once again declare the praises of God. I wonder, do you know these same things? Do you know these things? You see, we have the assurance of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in a way that David never knew. And, and that is because of Jesus, because of the cross, we have seen and experienced the very heart of God in Christ. And my point is simply this. You never have to be afraid to confess your sins to God. You never have to be afraid to confess your sins. That's, that's my big 30,000-foot takeaway from this psalm. You never have to be afraid to be honest with God. He knows anyway. You never have to be afraid to confess all your sins to God, big sins, little sins, private sins, public sins, secret sins, scandalous sins. You don't have to be afraid to confess your sins to God because in Christ they've already been forgiven because in Christ God holds no sin against you. Because in Christ, there is a limitless supply of grace that is greater than all of our sin. You never have to be afraid to confess your sins to God. Because of the cross, the fear of coming into the presence of holy God is gone forever. So humble yourself and be honest with God about your sin. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Confess your sins, big or little, and God will restore your joy. He will take away your guilt and give you a story of grace that will help others who need to know him in the way that you have come to know him by walking the path of restoration yourself. Now, by the way, here's a question that I get from time to time, and, that, and it's, a, it's a great question. But the question is, what if I still feel guilty after I've confessed? Like I confess my sin, but I still feel guilty. Does that mean my confession wasn't genuine? It's a great question. 
just, I'm just curious, but how many have, of you at one time or another have confessed the sin, but you still felt guilty after you confessed it? Raise your hand. Now, keep your hands up because I want everybody to look around and see how much of a, an issue this is. Yes, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Okay, so what's the answer to the question? Most of the time, the problem is not in the confession. The problem is with our faith. Most of the time, the problem's not in the confession. The problem is faith. The problem is, is you're putting too much emphasis on you and not enough emphasis on what Jesus has done for you. Yes, it is right to feel godly sorrow for sin. It is right to feel remorse for how you have dishonored God and hurt others by your sin. It's right to be broken over what you've done. But if you know, if you really believe that God forgives sin, if you know that God has already forgiven you of sin and he continues to forgive your sins because of the cross, if you know that and you believe that, there is no room for ongoing guilt. No need for fear, no longer room for guilt. It's gone. God's not requiring you to beat yourself up for messing up. You know why? Because Jesus took the beating for you. Jesus took the beating for you. He paid the debt of your sin so you don't have to. That means if you entertain lingering long-term guilt, you're saying, I don't think Jesus' death for my sin was enough. There's still something I need to do to atone for my sins, which is a lack of faith. You see that? So if after you repent of your sin, if guilt raises its ugly head, know that that guilt is not coming from God, it's coming from the enemy. The devil wants to keep you in bondage. If not in bondage to sin, then in bondage to guilt. And he tempts you to believe that you have to feel really, really bad to prove to God how sorry you really are, even though you've already been forgiven. So when guilt raises its ugly head, you say to the enemy, get behind me, Satan. Jesus has saved me from sin and from the guilt of my sin. Jesus no longer holds any sin against me, and that means that guilt has no place in my life. So the problem is not with confession. The problem is faith. Faith to believe that Jesus has taken away my sin and my guilt, and there's nothing left for me to pay. So the first step on the path towards restoration is repentance. You don't have to be afraid to confess your sin to God, and you don't have to live under guilt anymore because of the forgiveness that you have received from Jesus. It applies to your sin and the guilt of your sin. All right, second step, restitution. Now, restitution means doing whatever needs to be done to make things right with anyone you sinned against. Doing whatever you need to do to make things right with whoever you sinned against. And regen is called making amends. It's confessing your sins to those you've hurt and making things right. And I want to give you two passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, that gives us a picture of what restitution looks like. So turn with me. Find your way to Numbers chapter 5. When was the last time you were in Numbers? Yep, Numbers chapter 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel 
when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it. That's 20%, not a trip to the liquor store. Adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did wrong. So when a, here, look at it now. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, look at this, by breaking faith with the Lord. That's, that's a great definition of sin. When we sin, we break faith with the Lord. What's that mean? It means when I sin, I'm no longer trusting what God says is right, and I'm trusting that my way is more right than God's way, even though God says my way is wrong. Sin is breaking faith with God. And when a person sins, breaks faith with God, and realizes the guilt of their sin, we're told here that he needs to make full restitution for his wrong to the person that he's wronged. Now, that, this could be a verbal wrong. It could be a stealing kind of wrong. It could be a mistreatment kind of wrong. It could be a deceitful kind of wrong, uh, a defrauding kind of wrong, a dishonest kind of wrong. It could be a backing into somebody's car door kind of wrong. Whatever the wrong, you need to right the wrong. It's not just enough to make things right with God because God says right here, you can't be completely right with me until you're willing to make things right with the person that you've wronged. So in the Old Testament, this is how confession worked. Um, um, confession is me realizing that I've stolen something, I wasn't fair, I lied, I cheated, I defrauded, I said something I should, shouldn't have said, whatever. And so I say to God, God, I'm really, really sorry. And God says, I'm really glad that you're sorry, now make this right. You won't be right with me till you make it right with them. Go confess to them. But God, can't I just confess to you? No, go confess to them. But God, if I confess to them, then I have to make restitution. Yep, you have to pay back 20%. That's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a system. Repentance was attached to, and confession was attached to restitution. Confession wasn't just between people and God, it was between people and people. And the Jewish people lived under and lived by this law for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then one day Jesus shows up. And you know the story. Jesus is walking down the road and it's and this is so cool in the Gospels because everywhere Jesus went there was a crowd. There's crowds, 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 crowds. I mean he's walking down the street and he's this amazing teacher. He's this amazing miracle worker. He's a rock star at this point. Everybody's loving Jesus. And, and he's walking down the street, and there's this guy that wants to see Jesus, but, he, but he's too short. He can't see over the crowd. So he climbs up in a tree to get a better look in Jesus, and his name was Zacchaeus. And we remember that from, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And all the Sunday school people are smiling, see? So, so, so Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which meant, he was a super wealthy guy because Rome said, you need to collect taxes from your people for us, and such and such amount is the tax rate. But anything you can collect over and above what we require, you can keep. And tax collectors really stuck it to their own people in order to line their own pockets. Bottom line is that they were traitors. Now, you remember in the New Testament, they talked about tax collectors and sinners 
meaning tax collectors had their own category. I mean, tax collectors and sinners. Sinners didn't even want tax collectors in their category. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not as bad as those tax collectors over there. I mean, that's how bad the tax collector was. So Jesus sees wee little Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree, and he says, Zach, come down. I want to have lunch with you at your house. And this really disturbs people, and they start to grumble and complain. Doesn't he, go, does he know he's going to the house of a sinner and all this kind of stuff? But Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house anyway, and they have lunch. And, and as a result of this come-to-Jesus meeting, Zacchaeus stands up and he says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. So being in the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus is, is suddenly overcome by his sin, by how he has swindled and defrauded his own people, and he says, Lord, I'm coming clean. I'm making amends. I'll pay back, not the lawful requirement of 20%, but I'm going to pay back four times that amount. In other words, Lord, I was wrong. I know I was wrong. Forgive me. I'll make restitution way beyond what the, Lord, uh, the law requires, four times more. Now listen to what Jesus says to it. Now this is from the King James, okay? And Jesus saith unto him, Zacchaeus, don't get carried awayeth. Thou hast confessedeth, and it's enoughth that thou hast confessedeth thy sin to me in private. Now, I made that up. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> Here's what Jesus really said. This is awesome. Luke 19, 9. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, meaning his sin of greed and selling out his own people, that sin broke faith with God. Broke faith with God. But now that he's confessed and repented and he's making restitution, he's a child of faith, child of Abraham, child of faith once more. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 you don't, you don't, need, don't worry about paying people back. You don't, you don't need to start asking people if you've offended them. You don't need to make this public. No, Jesus says, great, this is what genuine confession is all about. And this is the kind of salvation that results from genuine confession. Genuine confession leads to genuine change. Sometimes genuine change only comes when you open your heart and your life and you confess your sins to real life, flesh and blood people. Sometimes that confession is you go and you confess to people to make things right. At other times, or in addition to that, we confess to people who will keep us right. We confess to make things right. We confess to those people, people we trust to keep us right. So it's not just confession to those you've hurt, but also to people who can walk the path toward restoration with you. You see, there are habits and addictions that have never been broken by simple willpower as people have struggled with them on their own. So yes, first, you confess your sins to God, you repent, you agree with God that what you've been doing is sin, and you tell him you want to change 
Like, let's say uh, uh, you've been living with someone before marriage and you're saying, well, you know, you're making excuses and you're saying, well, everybody does it and, and God God will forgive me and God, God knows, though, that we really love each other or that kind of thing. Or let's say you've been deceitful and dishonest in how you use alcohol and prescription drugs or maybe you're sneaking around and you're looking at porn or maybe you lie and exaggerate what you've done to make yourself look good or maybe you're a critical fault-finding person who puts others down to build themselves up or maybe you have a short temper or maybe when you get frustrated you say harsh unkind things to the people you love yeah you need to confess these sins to God but sometimes that won't be enough to bring lasting change sometimes you need to confess your sins and struggles to someone you trust to someone who will pray for you to someone listen who you ask to hold you accountable and to ask you hard questions, which means that you have to be committed to being honest with them. You know, a lot of times I'll have a, a, a wife come to me and she'll say, you know, I just really wish my, I, I wish you could get my husband into an accountability group. And I'm like, do you not know that accountability is a joke? Unless you want to be held accountable you can't hold people accountable who don't want to be accountable so so this is why James we're gonna look at one more passage here this is why James the half-brother of Jesus James he's the only person in the New Testament tells us that we need to who commands us to confess this is the only place in Scripture where we are specifically commanded to confess our sins to other people now let's read this together out loud James 5 16 with me beginning on three one two therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed one more time therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed we need to confess our sins to one another first to make amends to make things right with those that we've done wrong but James is telling us it's also healthy to have people in your community of faith to whom you confess and with whom you are willing to be completely honest. And James says, by bringing other people into your desire to change, you will change. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, if I start confessing, or if you start confessing your sins to a few trusted one another's, you'll have to change. And so when you read this within the context of of what James is writing here he's saying Christians when you get together when you gather in homes when you gather in small groups when you gather in your region group open your lives to each other open your hearts uh, to each other open that part of you that you really don't want people to see because you're afraid of how they might respond James says that is how genuine life change happens and it is one of the important ways that you end up experiencing healing because you know what James knew what many of us know from experience what many of us have learned the hard way and that is that secrets are like splinters the, the, the longer they're there the worse it gets and the best thing to do with a splinter is to get it out the best thing to do with a secret sin is to get it out 
the best thing to do with a besetting sin. That's a King James word there. The best thing to do with a sin that just keeps happening over and over and over, and you said, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and God's going, okay, you're sorry. I get it. I know you're sorry. You don't have to tell me you're sorry anymore. Let's just skip all that. I know you're sorry. God says, what I want you to do is handle this in a way that leads to healing, uh, to genuine change. You need to bring other people into the healing process because genuine confession, James is telling us, is a part of community life. Genuine confession is a part of community life. I love how Brennan Manning puts it in his book, uh, Abba's Child. He writes, in a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. Genuine confession is a part of community life. Okay, we gotta land a plane. Third step in the process of restoration is reconciliation. And reconciliation is pursuing a restored relationship with the person or persons you have hurt. Pursuing a restored relationship with those you've hurt, which means confessing your sins, making things right, and then this, working to rebuild trust, working to win back lost love if possible. Unfortunately, it's not always possible, but that's not the point. You need to do it anyway. Whether it's possible or not, it's good and right for you to take responsibility for the wrongs that you've inflicted on somebody without blaming You confess your sins and you ask for forgiveness without highlighting how the other person may have sinned against you. Now, a big part of reconciliation is graciously giving the person you've hurt time to heal and to learn to trust you again. Let me say that one more time. A big part of reconciliation is giving, graciously giving the person you've hurt time to heal and to learn to trust you again. This is huge because all too often I've heard the offender say, well, I asked her to forgive me and she says she's forgiven me, but it really doesn't feel like she has forgiven me. And I just don't understand why we can't wipe the slate clean and start all over again. Well, let me tell you why, here's why. Forgiveness is not trust. The person you hurt can forgive you, but still not be able to trust you. Forgiveness is a gift. Trust has to be earned. It has to be rebuilt. The person you've hurt can forgive you, but still not be able to trust you. And it takes time to rebuild trust. So here's what I typically say to the offender who wants everything to go back immediately to the way it was just after they heard the other person say, yes, I do forgive you. I said, look, your sin has wounded her deeply. You've confessed your sin, and that's good and right, but it's like, it's like you were at negative 50, and when you confess your sin, you feel like you're at zero now, and you're ready to start again. And she's forgiven you, but because trust has been broken, she's still at negative 50. And it's gonna take her some time to move to zero where you are and you have to show yourself you have to give her the time and you have to show yourself trustworthy and that means 
And this is where you get all kinds of pushback. That means if she wants the passwords to your phone or your computer or to your email accounts, you give it to them. Give them to her. If she asks you to get tested for STDs, you gladly get tested. If she wants you to commit to counseling or to go through regen or whatever she says, you do it. Whatever she asks you to do that she says will help rebuild trust, you gladly do it. Because look, if you have nothing to hide, then this shouldn't be a problem. Be an open book to help her heal and give her time to learn to trust you again because once more, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Now listen to this. Restitution in this case will not be a Zacchaeus paying back four times kind of restitution. But it may mean that you're willing for the process of healing and reconciliation to take four times longer than you think is necessary. The way back isn't easy. There's a cost and there are consequences. But remember last week, we saw how that the consequences of concealing your sin are always much worse than the consequences of confessing your sin. So I'm going to give you the question that I have to live with, had to live with all this past week, and that is, what do you need to confess and to whom do you need to confess? What do you need to confess and to whom do you need to confess? You see, confess, confession is a part of a process that brings about real change. Repentance, restitution and making amends, reconciliation and rebuilding trust. And it's not easy, but it is the only path that leads to joy and freedom. It's the only path that removes that guilt once and for all And that path's available to anyone who trusts God enough to walk it. Now, last week we heard Todd Devaney's personal story of grace. And this morning as we close, I want you to hear another personal story of grace of a couple that walked this path. And their names are John and Missy Missy Schrader. So turn your attention to the screens. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was actually a pastor. And so I grew up a pastor's kid. But something needed to change in my life um, when I realized just how long I had been living a double life. I had uh, really grown up trying to pretend that I had it all together. But underneath it all, I knew I didn't have it all together. And I knew I had um, issues of sin in my life. Um, specifically around sexual sin and uh, I just needed to I just needed to live an integrated life and I I realized it Missy and I went to a marriage conference together and uh, a man was there and he talked about pornography and I'd been struggling with that for years and I realized you know what tonight's the night the Holy Spirit was really pressing on my heart that tonight's the night you need to come clean and so that was the night that I confessed to Missy that I had an issue with pornography. And that story really became part of my story too, of course, you know, because 
the Lord really started to reveal in my own heart my self-righteousness. That's really what I learned as we were digging into you know, John's struggle. I think what I really started to see was my own sin and my own temptation to perform mm. and to really seek approval of others and think that my value and my worth was so dependent on what other people thought about me. And then to have John confess to me, that kind of revealed that I was putting my value and my worth in the wrong places. So that's really what kind of opened my eyes to, I'm broken. Another guy um, who was struggling with some of the same things I had struggled with, we started a men's group and we, we called it the Conquer Men's Series. And so we met every night on Monday, at Monday night for years. Um, Guys came and, and, and went, but uh, there was a core group of guys that we met with, and it was just neat to have community that knew me, that really knew me, but yet still loved me, you know? Then um, after that, we started Regen, which is a ministry for this sort of thing, and it puts a lot of structure and a lot of, um, you know, just a lot of tools around how do you handle, how do you deal with, you know, recovery, and how do you deal with, um, sanctification. How do you, how do you deal with, you know, growing deeper in your walk with God? And so I was really excited to be part of Regen. And uh, so me and the Conquer Group guys, we all got on board and, and jumped into the Regen story. And it's been great ever since. I don't think God intended this life for us to do it on our own. And so, um, you know, I think when we're, when I was caught in my sin, I felt like I had to do life on my own. And um, I felt trapped, I felt isolated, I felt by myself. Uh, but then you realize, hey, there are other guys that are just like me. And community has really changed my life. Um, and I always want to be in a community and, and be pouring into other guys and then pouring into me. Uh, just because I think that's part of the Christian life. It's not just on your own. You can't do this life on your own. God made us for that kind of community. You know, He made us for that. And when you really experience that richness of connection, man, that's really, yeah, that's really sure. sweet. That's sure. a gift. Really is. You see, the words we use to describe the process of restoration words like repentance and restitution and reconciliation they're not just words are they I mean because you hear in the Strader's story and Todd's story and countless other stories of grace you hear that these words are life they're life-giving they don't just lay there on a page but um, so grateful that John and Missy did this video shared this with us by the way um, as I mentioned after the service um, Trenton and Tanya and Todd Devaney uh, and a whole bunch of others from Regen will be out at the next step table. So will John. John will be there. Missy's out of town. She couldn't be here, but uh, uh, John will be there as well. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that we can close our service today by observing communion, by coming to the table, because what we're about to hold in our hands is kind of a visual tangible tasteable symbol of what of the redemption and the forgiveness that makes stories of grace like this possible 
because Jesus' body was broken for us on the cross, because he suffered for us, our broken relationship with God has been restored. And because Jesus shed his blood for us, all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. And there's a limitless supply of grace that applies to every single sin that arises on a daily basis when we break faith with God. So shift your focus now to what Jesus has done to make your story of grace and these others reality in your life.